Well, James has been teaching us about humility. And specifically, he's been doing it, uh, not telling us what humility is. He's been doing it by telling us what humility does not look like. Uh, the last time we were together, he confronted us about how we talk about people and how we tend to make plans, but not according to the will of God and not even usually including God in our plans. Uh, this week, James appears to be picking on wicked, wealthy people, uh, but trying not to think, well, that's not me. Um, he's also going to talk about how we ignore God when it comes to our wealth. Notice I said our wealth. As soon as we think it's our wealth, we know that we are on the path to ignoring God. Uh, it's easy to say, and a lot of Christian jargon goes like this, all we have belongs to the Lord, or, or we are stewards or managers of uh, the Lord's wealth. But it's a lot harder to live it out. And James is going to really challenge us all in this uh, tonight. And the title of our message is Possessions, Portfolios, and Humility. Possessions, portfolios, and humility. And it's a, for an American, it's a heavy subject matter, but uh, potentially I think it's one that could be earthly and eternally life changing for you if you really want to make some of the changes that we're going to talk about uh, tonight. Uh, when it comes to wealth, listen to what it says in the Proverbs. Proverbs 10 22 says this. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Let me read that again. The, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. But we've all heard stories and read stories of, of families that had great sorrow because of their wealth, that ran into great trouble because of their wealth. And many of us have seen people, some that we know and love, make tremendous compromises in their lives in order to gain wealth or to keep the money that they have. For many people, whether they're rich or poor or in between, uh, the love of money can easily kill the love of God in our hearts. The love of money can easily kill uh, a care and concern for other people. The love of money can easily make us what James referred to as a friend of the world. No longer a friend with God, but now a friend of the world. And, and James has been, if you've been with us, very, very straightforward and very, very direct. Some might say tonight he's going to get downright harsh. Uh, perhaps it's because this really ends the section on, let's call it, the pollution of the world. The pollution that the world puts in the heart of a follower of Jesus. By the way, if you're not a follower of Jesus, thanks for coming tonight. Really, really excited. And maybe you're going to get some insider info on how God feels about uh, money. And, and James has been warning us about how the world can pollute us and warning us where it can take us, and where we might end up. Now, Bible scholars debate, is James talking to rich believers in the church and how they think about their money and what they do with their money and how they, what they did to get their money? Or is James speaking like an Old Testament prophet to believers in the church? Now, a lot of times you see in the Bible where the prophets, God's prophets, are speaking to God's people about what's going to happen to the unbelieving people of the world. And the, and the wording does, I'll confess, seem odd in certain points for believers in the church, yet we would not expect unbelievers to be reading this letter. And so there's a whole variety of things that could be going on here. 
Again, he, he could be talking to the rich believers in the church or telling people what's going to happen to these dishonest rich people. He could be challenging the false converts in the church. He could be challenging a lot of the false teaching that is out there and still out there today. He could be warning the people of God not to envy the rich. He could be uh, reminding them that God will right the wrongs of the world if they feel like they're oppressed right now. Uh, telling the people, he could be telling the people of God what God will do with wicked rich people who take advantage of the poor or oppress the poor. But what he's not doing is he is not making a case for what's commonly known as liberation theology. If you know anything about liberation theology, we are right now in the centerpiece of liberation theology, of, of people who are very much against people who have any kind of, of wealth or, or what they did to get their wealth and necessarily means that they did evil to get it. Libera liberation theology essentially mixes Marxism with the Bible. And uh, you know how oil and uh, vinegar don't, oil and water don't mix? Well, uh, same thing with Marxism and the Bible. Uh, but, the, but the use of money, not having money, is the point of what James is talking about. Our attitude towards money. Remember, context is king. And he's been talking about humility. How do we think about money? So applying this text to all people who have money would be wrong. But so is discounting it and saying, well, this doesn't apply to me, and not thinking that it applies to how we think about money and possessions. Uh, James might also be aiming specifically for us as Americans at uh, our admiration of the rich, which can really shape a lot of our worldview and a lot of our actions. We have an, an unhealthy view of the, of the super, super wealthy. People either hate them or they just completely admire them as the greatest people on the world, in the world. Now, there's a big danger for us here uh, as Americans. We tend to think that we are not rich. I was reading was yesterday that Elizabeth Warren was... Uh, want to have a special tax on the wealthy, and that was def defined as $50 million. So that, that, that's some good change. I'll give, you, you know, I'll give you that. $50 million is a lot of money. But by far, when we consider the entirety of the whole world, most Americans are rich. We are, we are much richer. Even the poorest of us are much richer than some, some wealthy people in other countries. So we are rich by the world's standards. Uh, we have a saying in the business world, the checkbook doesn't lie, and nor does it uh, to a follower of Jesus. It's going to show us our checkbook, our online banking, however, whatever you want to look at, your credit card statement, that shows you ultimately what we really value. Now, when we get to verse 4, he's going to specifically call out wealthy landowners but I would think we're very foolish to think that he's only talking to them. Like that God intended, okay, for six verses, we're only going to cover six verses tonight. For six verses, I want all the rest of the people who are not wealthy landowners to check out. You, you can take a nap. You can take a vacation. You'll feel better when you get some rest. I don't think that's what he wants to do. I think he wants us to look at some of the principles that he is applying to these wealthy landowners. So he says, verse 1, James 5, 1, Come now, uh, some of your versions say, Listen now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Now, do you remember what we just read in Proverbs chapter 10? That God adds no sorrow to riches in here, he says to these rich people, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. So this is the exact opposite of what we read in Proverbs. Why? Well, because 
for the wealth that comes from God, the blessing that makes one rich, God gives with us that blessing, no sorrow. He allows us to enjoy it. But when it's our wealth, when it's all about us, it's our money and we did it and we're self-made men and women, he says here that it's going to produce misery. As we'll see, he's, he's talking to people who are selfish, who are unfair, and that has produced some oppression against some of the people of God. But again, before we release ourselves from this, it's very important that we make a, a connection or some sort of an association. And perhaps the easiest way to start is perhaps we might admit that we are often insensitive to the needs of others. You see this a lot in the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke talks about money quite a bit. And uh, it highlights a lot of Jesus' teaching on, on the negative effect that money has. Jesus notes the negative effect that money has against some of the people of God, against someone who is a follower of Jesus. In light of that, James is talking about the unrighteous rich. But what does that mean for an American Christian? Well, if most of the world would consider us to be wealthy by its standards, it also has to do with the way we use our wealth, our money, our possessions ourselves. You know, it's not just limited to individual Christians. It's limited, it's also uh, I would say it includes churches and it includes church buildings. Have you ever been to a church that's more like a theme park than a place that worships God? I look at it and I'm like, so the way we're getting people to come in to worship God is to just to make it a fun place, another fun activity for the, for the kids to do. I don't know, something about that seems kind of off to me. Call me old-fashioned. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 says this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, some versions say desires, which drown men or plunge men into destruction and perdition or, or, or eternal ruin. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed or wandered from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, before we go any further, let's look at verse 10 real carefully for a second. Now, look at the beginning. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say money is. He says the love of money is. So the love of money can do very, very unusual things to people. Uh, J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, says this, 1 Timothy, 1, uh, 1, uh, 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. For men who set their hearts on being wealthy expose themselves to temptation, they fall into one of the world's traps and lay themselves open to all sorts of silly and wicked desires which are quite capable of utterly ruining and destroying their souls. For loving money leads to all kinds of evil and some men in the struggle to be rich have lost their faith and caused themselves untold agonies of mind. So the love of money can do really, really strange things with our heads, with our hearts, with our souls, and with our values. Listen to the words of Bishop J.C. Ryle. He said this a long time ago. It is possible to love money without having it, and it's possible to have it without loving it. You see, some of the most covetous people of money are poor people. And some people who just really 
you know, money's not that big a deal to them, are wealthy people. Sometimes we'll use this expression, do you have money or does money have you? So as we think about verse 1 here and, and, the, and the misery and the, and the weeping and the howling, um, if we're willing to consider the possibility, it might include us. The language just grabs our intention. Again, weeping, howling, misery. It, it's interesting. The warning is, is to mourn their coming fate. They had money, but money did something to them. And what is their coming faith? No matter how much wealth they have, it can't shield them for what is coming their way. That gets down to the basic issue for a follower of Jesus. What are we trusting in? Who are we trusting in? Are you trusting in your salary? Are you trusting in your bank account? Are you trusting in your retirement account? Are you trusting in the government? Or are you trusting in the risen Christ? You know, I, I find it kind of ironic. I used to get the magazine, and then all of a sudden one day I got this notice in the mail that we're not going to publish this magazine anymore. Uh, Americans are obsessed with money. So I get this note in the mail that says, Dear subscriber to Money Magazine, we will not be printing Money Magazine anymore. <laughs> it was like, I guess we couldn't, de we couldn't deal with it anymore. Now, it was rolled into a magazine called Kiplinger's. But how interesting that Money Magazine couldn't make it. And we think that having a lot of money can help us make it even eternally. I find it interesting that the most crowded church on Sunday mornings, the local malls, are now closing. I find it weird that the most crowded place on a Sunday afternoon at this time of year, the football stadiums, are not crowded at all now. You see, we count on these things, but we really shouldn't. From God's perspective, a, an unhealthy desire for money and possessions will cause a lot of us to work towards and chase after the wrong things. As we will see, things that will not last. Yet, let's strike the balance. Plenty of rich people throughout history, have used their wealth to move the kingdom of God forward. In fact, there's many people in the Bible who were, who were quite wealthy. A couple Old Testament examples. Abraham, Joseph, King David, King Solomon. A couple New Testament ones. Joseph of Arimathea, Zacchaeus, some of the women who traveled around with Jesus who were supplying him with, with, with money. They were all very rich, that tells us that God is not against money. But again, once again, he wants to look at what is our attitude towards money. I mean, money is largely a heart issue. It's largely a worship issue. And the obsessive pursuit of money can really be a false God issue. If it's that, if money becomes your God, we have the opposite of humility. There's no humility in the blessings of God. Typically, people who have money, it is a pride in themselves. Verse 2 and 3 gives us reason for such direct language, or again, even harsh language, as he talks about people who hoard money. They keep it for themselves. He says, your riches are corrupted. Some of your versions say ruined or uh, rotted. Now, it could mean that they had a big barn full of food and it just went bad. They got so much, they didn't eat, it couldn't eat at all. They couldn't sell it all. It just, it just went bad. And your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corroded. Now, some people go, oh, ah, 
Stop right there. Bible inconsistency. Gold and silver, they don't corrode. It's a metaphor. What is he using it for? He says that they're not stable. They're not going to last. You can't count on them being around forever. And their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasures in the last days. The other version says you've hoarded up wealth in the last days. Here James just says to the people that are listening, listen, you have so much stuff, you don't even use it. I mean, you open up your closet and the moths just keep coming out. They're the ones who are making use of your clothing. You could have taken that clothing, you could have given it away. There would have been people who would have loved to have had it. And then you have so much food, you go over to the, you go over to the cabinet, Oh, expired. Oh, expired. Oh, expired. You've just got so much because you just keep buying more and more and more, not even paying attention to the clothing and the, and the food that you have. And here's the thing. They're, they're, just, they're just not paying attention. They have a temporary view of wealth. It provides nothing lasting for them, nothing meaningful for them. It has no eternal foundation. However, the Lord has given some of these things to some people for a different reason. Not to hoard it, but to spread the word of God and to help others. Yet others would rather feed the moths than people. Well, let's feed the moths. They don't, they'd rather let things expire than feed the poor people in their day. Now, we think of poor people, but back then they were very poor people. I mean, they had, they had next to nothing. And here James is saying, you don't want to feed them actual food. You don't even want to feed them the word of God. You want to pretend like they, like they don't exist but they're blind to the fact that the last days, and what are the last days? The time in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And could be, you know, any day for anybody, the last day. That should spur us on to share more, not to hoard more, not to keep all of our money for ourselves. Once again, the checkbook doesn't lie. The checkbook tells us our view of eternity. It tells us what it really is. We can talk a good game, but the finances don't lie. Your accountant knows how generous you are or you are not. Now, it's not too late if that's you. If you're sitting there going, man, I have been so incredibly stingy. It's not too late. You can repent. You can change your ways. But do it now before your last day, before God's accounting day. I mean, it's interesting. We understand their selfishness and we're, we're listening to it. And people listen to it week after week. They sit in front of the television. They listen to it in church. And the question is, what do we do about it? Do we do anything about it? You know, you watch those commercials with the kids that are starving. Now, I would advise you to look up some of those charities. Some are less efficient than others. But, but then you flick to the next channel and it's gone. You don't even think about it anymore. James is basically saying, for some people, money is consuming you. And when that happens, your riches have already gone bad. They've already corroded. The moth's already in the money. And the things are going rotten. Yet how worldly it is to live the way so many people do. So many people live like they are going to live forever. <laughs> so many people live like they will be here on earth forever and they give no thought to sending their riches ahead. 
no thought to investing in the work of God and people will be in heaven because of your investment. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel uh, said this, Ezekiel 7, 19, they will throw their silver into the streets and their gold will be like refuse. Another version says their gold will be like an unclean thing. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They will not satisfy their souls nor fill their stomachs because it, their riches, became their stumbling block of iniquity. Another version says because their riches caused them to stumble into sin. Their riches became their God. Their riches became their idol. And their lives, instead of centering around God, centered around their portfolio, their possessions, or their desire to get those things. I guess a question that might be worth asking ourselves is something like this. Do the blessings of God and the things that you and I have are the blessings of God? Do the blessings of God make us love God more or do the blessings of God make us love the blessings more and God less? Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and, and 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, for where, whatever you value the most, there your heart will be also. So whatever we treasure and value the most reveals our hearts. That's why Jesus said, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because typically, a rich man or a woman does not value the kingdom of God most of all. And that can even happen to, to rich people in church. Maybe, maybe you make, let's say, a million dollars a year. Just pick a number. Make a million dollars a year. And, you know, you give $100 a week to the work of the gospel. Is that, is that really, really loving God most? Or is that kind of just like, I feel a little better if I give something? And, and I think it's something that we should really take to heart because when Jesus says it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, he's dead serious. And again, if most Americans, as world standards go, are rich, then we are at a bigger challenge than most when it comes to this. So when we come to verse 4, we see how the rich landowners treated their workers. Now, before you get all upset about it, let's flip it just for a second. He's going to talk about how landowners treat their workers or their employees, bosses, how they treat their employees. How do you treat your company? How do you treat your boss? I mean, it's a two-way street. It's nothing that the Bible lets us off from. Here he's just talking about it in terms of the employers. He says, verse 4, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. Some verses say you failed to pay or you withheld. Those wages cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Now, that's the Lord of hosts. That has nothing to do with the Sabbath. The hosts are the armies of God. Now, in the ancient world, much, much more than today, most of the wealth was held by a very few. Now, 
it's true today. The wealthiest of all people hold an exorbitant amount of the world's wealth. But, but back then, if you lived in most areas outside of the cities, you would find that there would be these rich, rich, I mean, crazy rich landowners and the very, very poor, poor, barely able to put food on the table people who worked for them. Now, these rich landowners, like still happens today, they often hired day laborers. They also hired tenant farmers who would have to pay these exorbitant high fees to, to, to use the land. So you have land. I'm a tenant farmer. I come and I say, okay, this is how much I'm going to pay you to rent your land to grow crops. And so we set the fee, and it's very, very high. All it takes is a bad year, and I can barely make my payment if I can make it at all. And I've worked all year, and there's nothing left for my family, nothing left for me. Now, some of the entrepreneurs who are watching right now go, they go, that's what happens in my business, man. I work so hard, and it, it, it's, you know, I, there's nothing left. And when you own a business, that's why I tell people who always say they want to own a business, you've got to remember, you get paid last, not first. It's against the law not to pay your employees. It's not against the law not to pay you. <laughs> and so, so these guys were paying these very exorbitant high fees. Now, Jesus used these idea, this idea of day laborers and tenant farmers in a lot of his parables that we see in the New Testament because in the Gospels because it was so common in the ancient world. So a day laborer, what's a day laborer? Typically, a day laborer would be paid at the end of the day. So he could bring his money home to the family or he could stop and buy food on the way home or his wife would have money to buy food for the, for the next day. Um, some of you uh, are contractors or you've dealt with contractors and when, as soon as they're done the job, they're like, I want my money. I want my money. Uh, this is just a public service announcement. Please don't count this against my time. Make sure you inspect the job and test to see if it works before you give them the money because some of them will not come back. You're like, there's dishonest people out there in this world? Just a few. So make sure you, you check on that. Now, those of you who own other types of businesses, you don't like the people who get their money at the end of the day because you don't get your money at the end of the day at all. Uh, I was, um, you know, I just, I just saw an invoice that uh, a business got and I... I they, somebody showed it to me, and, and it said, terms net 60 days. We have other clients in our company that they want to pay the bill in 90 days. And, and the reality is, uh, if you want to play with the big boys and the big girls, <laughs> you're going to have to wait because they're going to hold your money. They're going to pay you, what, you know, when they want. And a lot of times you have to have a lot of money just to, we call it the float, to float all the money of the people that owe you and still pay your employees at the end of the week. Now, I know a lot of you business owners, you hate that. You're like, I got to keep you know, all this money when, you know, you know, in, in the company. But just remember that uh, when you sell your company or when you close your company, that money's yours. It's really sort of, so, so watch that carefully. But, but, you know, people, and a lot of times people just don't pay you. Now, while this day labor farming example might be foreign to us, where we live, it's not other, some of those of you who are listening in other states, even in the southern part of this state, it's not, a, it's not an uncommon thing to you. And, you know, people coming across the border as day laborers or seasonal labor and stuff like that. I think there's some important principles here. For the people that own the land, that are ripping off the day laborers and ripping off the tenant farmers to make more money, the principle is one sin leads to another. And that is a very, very important principle to understand about sin. Greediness. No matter what you do for a job, greediness will lead to hoarding money. Hoarding money will lead to a lack of sharing. 
while that will lead to a lack of humility. And that's what James is talking to us about. That can actually give way, even for a follower of Jesus, to dishonesty. I hate to say this, but I have found over the years some of the worst business people I've ever dealt with in my life have been quote-unquote Christian businessmen and Christian businesswomen. Now, sometimes I'm more exposed to Christian businessmen. I've met guys and they've said, well, I'm a Christian businessman. And I said, well, we will see if you are. We will. And so I'll say things to them like, um, okay, well, let's do this job. And they go, well, can you give me can you give me some money up front? And I'll say, well, I'm not against that, but why do you want money up front? And they'll say, well, I have to, I, when I go, I'm on COD, cash on delivery with this vendor. What is that often? You didn't pay your bills. I'll say, why are you on COD? Did you not pay your bills? Well, you know, I, I, I went on vacation and I, I was doing this, I was doing that. That's not a Christian businessman. You pay your bills, and then you go on vacation. You don't come back and tell your vendors or your real estate company or your mortgage company that you can't make your payments because you were on vacation. Or they'll cheat on their taxes. They'll say, just make the check out to me. When a guy says, just make the check out to me, he's cheating on his taxes, just so you know. You want to know why your taxes are so high besides the fact that the government wastes your money? because there's a lot of people cheating on taxes. I've only heard in my lifetime one president ever talk about that, and that was Ronald Reagan. He was the only guy who ever talked about it. Nobody even wants to talk about it. Or you say to them, okay, I'd be happy to um, do, do business with you. Your card here, it says that you're fully insured. Yes, I'm fully insured. All right, have your insurance agent email me a certificate of insurance. Well, um, uh, uh, it might be expired. Well, then your card's a lie. You should cross it out. It's a, it shouldn't say fully insured. It should say not insured, not remotely insured. Or you get the certificate and you're saying you don't have the insurance that you said you had. Call yourself a businessman or a woman. That's okay. But don't call yourself a Christian one because that's not true. Or... They're employees. You know, they're like, oh, well, you know, I, I mean, how's it to work for this guy? Well, it's fine. I mean, do you, do you get anything out of it? Well, yeah, he, he adds me a wad of cash at the end of the day. No health insurance. No workers' compensation. Nothing. Nothing. You see... All that goes from greediness to hoarding to dishonesty. It's a lack of humility before God. Not to mention, many people don't really care that much for people in need. A lot of times people will say, well, I'll give you this if I can get a tax deduction. <laughs> Come on, man, really? You say in the one side of your mouth, you say you want to help people. On the other side of your mouth, you say you'll do it as long as you can get a tax deduction. Now, I'm all for getting tax deductions. I believe in rendering unto Caesar what's due Caesar and not a penny more. But we also have to render unto God what belongs to God. And I think we're even worse at that. We can even rob God. I'll read the Old Testament uh, prophet Malachi. And I'll, before you object, hear me out. Malachi 3, 8 through 10. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Some versions say contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. So what is he saying to his people? What is God saying to his people? You're robbing me. You're, you're, you're not giving me tithe with 10%. They had three of them, uh, so it was quite a bit of money. But just let's just, just deal with the 10% number. 
Do you know what the average Christian gives each year? 2%. Now, I know a lot of people that give 10, 20, and 30%. Not as many as I'd like to know, but I know a lot of them. That, lo- that takes the 2% number down for most people a lot lower than 2%, doesn't it? So 2%, that's what most people give. Do you know what most unbelie- unbelieving people give? 2%. It's about the same. It's about the same. And now you're saying, oh, this is not right, Pastor Jim, because you know that the accounting office sent those uh, giving statements out uh, a week or two ago. How do I know that? I got one in the mail. <laughs> okay, and so, and so we can look at that. And, and we have to say, did, did, did the giving hurt? Or did we even get one? This is important. Verse 10, now those 2% numbers, they change from year to year. There's been years when unbelieving people were higher. Other years when Christian people were higher. Verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse, the Lord says, that there may be food in my house and try me in this. Another version says, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be enough not will not be room enough to receive it. So he says, test me. Give me the give me the tithe and watch what I do for you. Watch how I bless you. Oh, Warren Wiersbe used to say, he's now home with the Lord. He used to say, listen, the Lord's going to get his money from you. He's going to. He's either going to get it in the offering box or he's going to put it in the plumber's pocket or he's going to put it in the car repair man's pocket or he's going to put it in, in the roof repair guy's pocket, but he will get it from you. He, he gonna, he's going to get that money from you. Somehow he's going to do that. Now, I know right now some of you, if you know enough Bible, you know, you're pushing back and you're saying that, you know, Pastor Jim, I've heard you say before that you're more of a grace-giving person than you are a, a tithing person. Okay. But here is the question I always ask myself and anybody before I will engage in that discussion any further. Are you saying that Old Testament tithing is not in effect out of deep theological conviction after reading and studying hard the New Testament or are you saying it because you're a cheapskate? Or are you saying it because you're selfish? Or are you saying it because it is an excuse? You see, for a lot of us, 10% is really, when you talk about grace giving, now I know with some people, you're, you're a single mom, you're getting, you know, unemployment or something like that, you're struggling to put food on the table. I always tell people here, put $5 in the offering box and we'll give you $50 worth of groceries. Just so you're, you're giving to the work of the Lord. But for some people, if you were to take 10% of your income and give that to the gospel work, to, 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 to you know, the, pro- the proclamation of God's word. Now, there's lots of ministries. I personally think that the first part of your giving should go to your church because that's where you're fed spiritually and that's who you call when you have a family trouble and that's who you call when you need counsel and that's who you call when you need a favor but, or you need something done. You need to be blessed by the, by the church, by the people of God. But for many people, particularly if you're out of this area, in this area, man, I know that people talk about it's expensive to live here because people make a lot of money who work around here. A lot. When I talk with people in other countries and I, and I hear the kind of salaries they make, I'm like, man, people around here make way more than that. Way more than that. For a lot of people, 10% could just be a starting point for many. Now, the prosperity preachers say, give it to me and God will give you more. That is a lie. That is a lie. Although I will say this, I know people who, 
who are very generous to God, and, and God just seems to keep giving them more. It seems like God says, well, you know what? You're responsible with this. I'm going to give you more to be responsible with. But ultimately, the truth of the matter is, it's a heart issue. So the soul-searching questions are, are we really grateful to God? Do we really believe all that we have is His? Do we really trust God? Not to mention... And I'm not asking for anybody to say it out loud. In our hearts, how important is the work of the kingdom of heaven on earth to you? How important is it to me? Do we believe 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7? We have a whole sermon on just that one verse. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, God very, very rarely, a couple places in the Bible, picks out certain kinds of people that he plays favorite towards. I don't know about you, but I want to be one of God's favorites. I just do. And so I want to be a, a cheerful giver. I want to be like, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. This is a blessing to be able to do this. Once again, James is a great illustrator so he takes us out into the open field here in verse 4. And he charges the rich. But he also provides comfort to the sufferer that God sees who's been taken advantage of. That God cares about their situation and God cares about your situation too. God sees the disappointment. Some of these people, they worked all day and then they didn't get as much money as they thought that they were going to get. Uh, the harvest for them was supposed to be a time of joy for some of these tenant farmers. And it ended up they didn't have, they didn't get what they were expecting and they still had to pay the, pay the rent. And it was a time of, of sorrow or maybe the percentage they had to pay was just so ridiculous. They couldn't even really have much left over for their family. The Lord wants us also to see that the unrighteous will one day face judgment, the judgment of God and his army. Verse 5, he points them to their self-indulgence. He says, you have lived on earth in or for pleasure and luxury. Another version says self-indulgence. So once again, you've lived on earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. What does he say? He's saying, he's saying that you lived so much for you and your money and your self-indulgence. James, again, a great illustrator, compares you to an animal that they fattened him up. They kept feeding him and feeding him and feeding him so they could, they could butcher him and he'd be full of meat. And God's saying, this is what you're like. You're setting yourself up like that. From selfishness to dishonesty, we move to self-indulgement, self-indulgence, a failure to love God and to love other people. Now, again, God is not judging capitalism. He is not judging any other economic system. He's exposing greed and it's resulting sin. Now, I'm a capitalist. I don't think it's a perfect system. I just don't think the other systems are any better. In fact, I think all the other systems are, are worse. God is not saying it's wrong to be wealthy. What he is saying is what you do with your wealth is important. What you do with whatever resources God gives you, even if it's just a little bit, it's so very, very important. Now, you might about now be going, none of this applies to me. None of this applies to me. While others in the world would say, you know, you Westerners, of course you don't think any of this applies to you because then you don't have to do anything about it. But it totally applies to you. It's the way you live. It's the way Christians live in America. And, and when we look at so many other parts of the world, it's very hard to disagree. It's very hard to disagree. You know, it's so easy for us to be blind to this stuff. You know, 
We have in this country right now so many politically correct international companies. Politically, we're doing the politically correct thing in this country, and we're all about all of this stuff and justice and all this kind of stuff while they are manufacturing their goods in poverty-stricken countries and paying nothing to people who work for them. What a bunch of phonies. They're trying to look a certain way to sell their goods, but the reality is they're not practicing what they're preaching. But this is why that you say, how do they get away with this? Because they know that ultimately people don't care. They just want cheap prices. And the government, it seems to care very little about it. They want us to spend less so we, they can, get, I guess, charge us more taxes. And then they can waste our money. And having these expensive parties. You ever see some of those parties those people have? And you can't go. You paid for it, but you can't go. And then they wonder why an outsider from New York City and Florida and Atlantic City and right over here in Bedminster, New Jersey can win a presidential election. It's like, how did this happen? How did this happen? Because somebody came along brazen enough to call it out, to call it what it is. But none of us are exempt. Our economy is built on us always wanting more. Our economy is built on us never being satisfied. So there's an important contrast here. The dishonest may seem like they're getting away with it here, but judgment is coming. But there's a flip side. The faithful... The poor in spirit. I read the Beatitudes this morning, and when I was done, I was like, that was too good, man. I'm going to read it again. <laughs> and I was like, Lord, I am so not that guy. I thank gosh. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. But the faithful poor in spirit will benefit in the next life. And you, if you want to read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, you can see that. James' point seems to be here. Not only do people engage in self-indulgence, but they don't even seem to give it a second thought. They, they don't even seem to, to think about it. Ultimately, it comes down to who and what your life is centered on and what my life is centered on and the consequences for wrong choices. Verse 6, he moves into these people. He's talking about how oppressive they are. He says, you have condemned, you have murdered the just. Some versions say the righteous. He does not resist you. He, he doesn't oppose you. Probably meaning you're mistreating people who don't even oppose you or are just powerless to oppose the rich. Now, this is, again, one of those things. We sit here and we go, is this literal murder? Hard to tell. Probably not. Could be court, taking them to court. Could be starving them by the way they rip them off or the way they don't care for them. It could be starving their families. It could be paying... The, the poverty wages or not the wages they agreed to. It, it might be best to see that the wealthy can reach a point. People who have money can reach a point. No, not people who have money. People who money has them can reach a point where they think they take the place of God in their little corner of the world. They take the place of God in society. They think they are the experts just because they hold the power. Perhaps James here is talking about taking land from people. 
People owed you money and you said, fine, don't pay me, but I want your land. That's how a lot of people ended up slaves in the ancient world. They had so much debt, they had to sell themselves into slavery. Or maybe they borrowed money and they couldn't pay it back. Or other things. You see, the law of Moses, in a lot of things that seem bizarre to us, contain many references to the mistreatment of the poor because God knows the way people are. And if you apply the principles, we see that James doesn't condemn riches except when it leads to sin. Except when we fail to use our money according to the word of God. And I know for a lot of you, this is the last thing you really need to give to God before you have your breakthrough. This is it. You, you've given a lot of stuff over to God, a lot of stuff. But this is the one thing that's really, really hard for you. you just, and, and you need, I, all I best I can tell you is just do it and experience the freedom and experience the blessing. Now, before you say, listen, you're just uh, trying to get money for the church or something like that. People who give money to the church here, honestly, they never ask for any, any influence or, or any, you know, kind of thing. It happens just once in a blue moon. And, you know, if it's something we can do, I can say, well, we can take it under suggestion. We'll probably do it. I, I just if you direct it, if you tell us we have to use it for this or for that, it may not be eligible for a tax deduction if you want one. But we don't, we don't, people don't give us money and say, well, do this or do that with it. They may say, you know, put it towards the radio station. We want to have other people reach with the gospel or, or give it to missions or something like that. But, but people, people, don't, people don't do that here because most of the people I believe that attend here are trying to use their money according to the word of God. Now, you say, I have to provide for my family. Absolutely, you do. No disagreement whatsoever for me on that. You say, oh, I need to save for the future. Absolutely, 100%. Absolutely, I agree on that. But you also have to give generously to the work of the Lord. 100% yes. And just you know, go through your bills and look at all the frivolous spending that we do while people are not getting to hear the gospel. You know, while people are not knowing the true story of Jesus Christ. We talk about money here when it comes up in the text. I have no qualms about going after it when it comes up we don't talk about it the other times. Sometimes people meet me and say, you know what I like about this church is you don't pass the offering plate. We never did. Be a church 16 years next month. Never, ever have passed it. And I always say, but why would you like that? What do you mean, why do I like that? I mean, why do you like that? If you want to bring your friends here and, and say, my, my church is not going to try and bilk you for money, but that's, I get it. I like that. I like that. But if you say, I like that you don't pass the plate so I don't feel obligated to give money to the work of the Lord, that's not a good answer. That's not a good answer at all. You see, James, or Pastor James, he's really a pastor. All the, the apostles were pastors. Doesn't back down from this. You know, there's a lot of people that I know because of their donations and they're giving to the work of the Lord, they live in a smaller house. <gasps> Did he say what he just said? They live in a smaller house because of giving to the work of the Lord? When we moved up to this area, Pam and I were driving around a, a wealthy, wealthy area, and we were just looking at the houses, and my, my wife said, how do, in the world do they afford these houses? Or these taxes, and I go, well, they probably just don't tithe. 
That's probably what it comes down to. But you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. And so, yeah, maybe, maybe Pastor James is teaching all of us tonight, maybe you're going to have to live in a smaller house than you can really afford. Maybe you're going to have to drive an older car. Huh? Did, did he really just say that? Did he really just say that? Now, some of you say, well, Pastor Jim, you always seem to have reasonably decent cars. Well, I'm only going to tell you what I do, and I'm not saying it's for everybody. I buy a car. I keep it for six years. I keep it in tip-top shape, and then I give it away. That's what I do. That's what our family does. We can afford to do it, not from being a pastor, from owning companies, but, but, but something. And there's no tax deduction for it. It's just trying to share the blessing that God has given to our family with other people. Man, maybe you can make a meal for someone. Prayer request goes out. If you're on the prayer request line, you hear someone's sick. Man, fire it back. If you reply to it, it comes back to the church. Fire it back. How do I get a meal to that family? What can I do to bless them? Any, we, can all do, we can all do something. You see, you might drive a car for a little longer. And you might live in a smaller house. But you'll get the glory of heaven. You will be rewarded for all eternity for your sacrifice. If the love of money is a temptation for you, I would encourage you to write this down and pray this verse. Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9. Remove falsehood and lies from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. Why? Verse 9. Lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So let's summarize. Saving is good. Hoarding is not. Excess will go to waste and you won't be able to bring it to heaven with you. Jesus taught that treasure invested in heaven will not fail. It will not get moldy. And that our use of money is directly related to our trust in God. We are to be honest. God's people should be known for their honesty. That doesn't mean if you get a bill that you think is wrong, you don't call up and dispute it. That's not what I'm talking about. But once it's settled, you're to be honest. We also have to realize that there is a cost associated with serving God. Too much luxury or a sense of entitlement will dull our sense of hearing the word of the Lord, will dull our desire to follow God. I think one of the scariest things to me when it comes to the power of possessions, the power that money has over so many people is that money was one of, if not the primary motivation for Judas to betray Jesus. And he betrayed him for really such a little bit of money. But while Jesus could have used his power to defend himself, he chose not to. But he died on the cross in our place for our sins, including the sin of our greediness. The rich religious leaders had Jesus crucified. I always liken those guys sort of to the mafia. It's not personal, Jesus. It's business. 
because the temple was big business for those guys. And you know, if they said that to Jesus, it's not personal, it's business, they'd have been 100% right because those guys had no personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that was indeed the problem. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, heaven, yet for your sakes, for my sakes, for all of our sakes, yet for your sakes he became poor, earth, through his, that through his poverty might become rich. So for your sake, he became poor, that through his poverty, his dying on the cross, you could become rich. I mean, think about that. Jesus was rich beyond measure in heaven. And he laid it all aside to come down to earth to die on the cross so you and I could be rich for all eternity. God the Father. How rich is God the Father? And he took the most valuable thing he had in the whole world, his one and only beloved son, his very life, and he gave it to the world. That's what John 3.16 is all about. Today, God asks you and God asks me to give our lives to him since he gave Jesus' life to us. And that all begins by putting your trust in Jesus Christ, by turning from whatever your sins are, including your unbelief, to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins in eternal life. But it's also from turning from the sin of greediness or lack of humility to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. May he free us from these things and give us true freedom. As the scripture says, he who has the Son is free indeed. Well, let's pray.